please take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 27. Um, the thing I want to start off the new year with, um, there's something, I don't know if you've noticed in our culture for the last 15 to 20 years, but with the rise of social media, the rise of 24-7 connectedness, the rise of cell phones, and um, incredible connectedness and always being entertained and always having something in our hands, always having our minds engaged, always having something in front of us, there has grown an incredible need, something that I think a lot of Christians from other centuries did not battle with this as much, and that is the need for us to pause for personal reflection and introspection. That we are always being externally stimulated, always having some, there's always an input into our lives and into our minds and into our hearts. There's this constant flow of information, constant flow of busyness that it is very hard for us, many of us, to just stop, pause, and reflect. But that is something that has always been a part of Christian tradition. Silence, solitude, getting alone with Jesus, taking a long, hard look at your own heart and your own soul, that is, a, that is a spiritual habit that has fallen out of favor with our busy world. And I would say it has not been to our benefit, that it has not been to my personal benefit and my own spiritual life and journey. And so today, I want us to take a moment and have a spiritual checkup. Many of us have to go for annual visits, annual, um, we have to go see our doctor, and we need to have, uh, we, they go, he goes through a list of diagnostic questions and tries to see how we can gauge our physical health, or many of us take a mental health, um, uh, we can take a mental health inventory and try to see where are we on this spectrum of mental health, but far too, far too seldom do we take a look and go, okay, where am I spiritually? Where am I spiritually on the spectrum of spiritual health? When is the last time I've had a really good, hard look at my soul to ask, am I where Jesus would have me to be? And I just want you to know that this is a biblical principle of having a spiritual checkup. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, he writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He says, or, he says test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So he commands them to examine themselves, to test themselves, and then he goes on to say, don't you know that Christ Jesus is in you? So it's important, especially at times like New Year's, that we diagnose our spiritual health. And so I want to give you ten questions. They're not my ten questions. These are from Donald Whitney, one of my favorite um, favorite authors, and he, he has 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health, and here they are. And so I'll, if you want a copy of these later, just see me. I'll have my notes here. You can have them. But here they are, 10 questions. Number one, do you thirst and hunger for God? Do you hunger and thirst for God? Do you have affections for the Lord Jesus? Number two, are you governed increasingly by God's Word? Is there a pattern in your life where you are being governed more day by day by God's Word? Another one, and these are hard questions. Number three, are you more loving? Not are you loving, are you more loving? Are you growing spiritually in your love for one another? Number four, 
Are you more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Do you pay attention to the Spirit speaking day by day? Or do you tune that out and just go about your business as though God's Spirit is not active day by day in our lives? Number five, do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? So do you, as you go about loving others, do you care more about their spiritual and their temporal well-being? Do you care both about those things? Is that a part, or do you just ignore the needs of others? Number six, do you delight in the bride of Christ, his church? Many of us are here because our parents make us come, or many of us are here because it's a habit, or it's just something that we do, but really the question is, do you have a delight for God's people? Does, God, do, does the bride of Christ delight you? Number seven, are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? We just did a, a sermon series on that a couple months ago. Um, are the spiritual disciplines important in your life? Spending time in Bible study, prayer, serving others, worship, sharing the gospel. Number eight, do you still grieve over sin? That's a sign of spiritual health and vitality. Do, do you grieve over indwelling sin in your life where you go, Jesus, this is not who I want to be. And by your grace and by your spirit, I want to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. Number nine, are you more quickly to forgive others? Do you forgive others more quickly? Do you hold on to grudges? Do you, do you let bitterness fester in your life and in your heart and in your mind? Or by God's grace and by the work of His Spirit, as you understand the gospel more richly and more fully, as you grow spiritually, do you go, it's still hard, but I'm, I'm more, I'm more, I now move more quickly towards forgiving others. And number 10, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Not do you long for your life here to be over. That's not the question. Do you long for the day you will stand in Christ's presence? Do you long for Jesus? So those are ten questions to diagnose spiritual health. And so what I want to do now is I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7. Because we're going to take a spiritual checkup based on what Jesus has to say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning we're going to be looking at the conclusion of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you do not know this, I encourage you to study the Sermon on the Mount this year. But this sermon, Jesus' goal is to lay out the principles and commands for his disciples. He's going to explain how they are to relate to him as their master and Lord, as his disciples. And he's going to talk to them about their relationship to others as they seek to love and serve others while enduring hardship and persecution. And specifically about... The, the Sermon on the Mount deals with how they are to relate to Christ's kingdom as they live for Jesus and not the world. So here at the conclusion, we're at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his listeners to reflect on what they've heard and to choose, take an inventory, have a checkup, and to choose whether or not they're going to follow him. He calls them and us to reflect on what they've heard and to take a long, hard look at their hearts and souls. So that's what we're going to do this morning from Matthew chapter 7. This is a difficult text. It's not a difficult text because it's hard to understand. 
It's a difficult text because of how clearly and plainly it speaks. And so, listen to what Jesus says at the end of chapter 7, beginning there in verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then, here's the conclusion, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So I want to give you three things this morning, three three diagnostic tests for you to examine yourself. This is not for me to examine you. This is for you to examine your own heart and your own soul um, to gauge your spiritual life this morning. Number one, notice that Jesus begins with this idea of checking your path. Checking your path. Checking the road on which you are living. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see here that Jesus says that there are only two paths or two roads or two ways before all of us. Now, this two-way understanding fits well with Jewish history. All of Jesus' listeners here would have immediately thought of the two paths or the two ways that Moses put before Israel as they entered the promised land after the exodus. So if you were to go back to Deuteronomy 27, you'll find there that God had all of the people arrayed on two mountains and said there are two paths in front of you. One on one mountain were to to exclaim the curses of God for if they were to uh, disobey God's commands and break his covenant. And the other side of the congregation on the other side shouted across the blessings of the covenant, what God's rewards and blessings would be if they kept God's covenant and they were to do what God said by his word as they entered the promised land. So Jesus draws on that same theme here. And here are the two paths that Jesus lays out. Notice first the wide path. Jesus says there's a wide road. Jesus describes this road as wide, easy, and filled with many people. This is the well-traveled path of the world, much like an interstate highway. It's wide, it's straight, and it's built for convenience. The word here carries the idea, the word wide carries the idea of prosperous, 
that these people are on a path of ease and comfort. It all looks great, but Jesus says that this path is the path that leads to destruction. This is the path that leads to perishing. In C.S. Lewis's famous screw tape letters, the demon screw tape tells his nephew Wormwood, they're both demons, how to keep people on the wide road. And this is what he says. He says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. So this is the gentle, wide-open path that is easy, filled with self-sufficiency, self-ambition, self-congratulations, self as captain of your own soul, ultimately the self-as-God path. In my mind, I imagine this because I'm a, I'm a hiker and I like to be in the woods, not simply a path in the woods, but as a, as a gentle river. And you can float and kayak on this river and you're going to go wherever it flows. And what you don't recognize is before it's too late, there is a catastrophic waterfall at the end. It was wonderful and smooth and beautiful and easy going. And you never knew all along as you were moseying along in your kayak that there is a place, a point of no return at the end where there is no turning back. Now, Proverbs 14.12 makes this same warning. I think Jesus draws on this as well. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's the wide path. But notice there's a second path. Jesus says there is a narrow path. This is contrasted with the wide path. So he contrasts the wide and easy road with a very narrow path. Jesus says, instead of entering that way, Jesus says to enter by the narrow gate. The word used here is tethlamino, which means the way of difficulty, the way of tribulations or trials. This path is small and tight and hard and difficult and filled with dangers. To me, this is very much like many mountain paths I've been on, filled with very narrow passages, technical climbs, where you have to pay attention to every place you put your foot. Many steep ascents, many steep declines. Now, there are three truths I want to point out about these, this, this first section here. Three truths. Number one, first, you need to know that Jesus himself is the narrow gate. Jesus himself is this narrow gate. That's what he's been arguing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling listeners to come and follow him as his disciples, to find in him their joy, their rest, and their eternal life. Jesus calls himself the gate in John 10 when he says, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters by me will be saved. And he says, and I will come in. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus himself is this gate. He says in John 14, he says, I am the way. I am the path, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. So Jesus is the narrow gate. We must enter the gate and come in by him. You cannot skip the turnstile. You cannot skip the line and go around some other way. In John Bun Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, this is how 
Christian begins his pilgrimage, he goes in by the narrow gate and he finds a little later that someone had jumped over the fence in by another way. And he's like, That's, that can't happen. That's not, you got to enter by the gate. And that gate is Jesus. The second truth is this. If you have truly come through the narrow gate, then you are on the narrow path. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you come in through the narrow gate, then you're on the narrow path, which is the way of difficulty and hardship. This is the way of repentance and holiness. The way of continually aligning your mind and your heart and your affections and your actions with God's word. That's how you know. This is, by the way, where we get the phrase, the straight and the narrow but it's the way of repentance. It's the way of aligning my heart, mind, and emotions with God's Word. Continually dying to my sinful desires and continually choosing to follow Jesus instead of the easy and wide way of the world. And this requires something of us. This has a cost. This is not easy, right? Jesus says that we have to have a willingness to take up our cross day by day to follow Him. This is not the easy and wide path like our culture tells us, the easy and wide path of doing whatever feels good or doing whatever my heart tells me to do. No, it's the path of doing what Christ says. That I'm finding my joy in Him and not in other things. That if Jesus, if, G, if, the, way of follow, if the way of Calvary is difficult, then I lay down my rights or my, or my desires for other things and I say, it's worth it to follow Jesus. And the third truth is this, and this is the hard one. Those are hard too, but this one's really hard. The third truth is this, everyone in the world is on one of these two paths. That's what Jesus says. Everyone on the world is on one of these two paths. There is no third option. Jesus makes this claim, hear me, Jesus makes this claim not just as another teacher or Jewish rabbi, he makes this claim as the Son of God. If you notice the very last verse of this chapter, look at verse 28. I didn't read it earlier. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This isn't just some other guy saying this. This is the very Son of God. Listen. You might say that this is an exclusive, that this, you might say here that this exclusive claim of Jesus is very narrow-minded. Jesus, this is very narrow-minded for you to say that there's only two paths and you are, on, you are the only one that actually leads to life and the other actually leads to destruction. And I would say that Jesus would agree with you. He chooses the word narrow on purpose. He says this is a narrow path. It is not wide. So my question is, what path are you on? Are you walking the gentle and easy way of the world? Or are you walking behind Jesus on the road to Calvary that is difficult and hard? The road of self-denial and self-renunciation. The road of repentance and holiness. Check your path. Check your path. There's only two. Number two. Jesus goes on from here and he says, you also have to check your fruit. He says you have to inspect the fruit of your lives. Look at verses 20, look, sorry, look at verses 15 through 23. Jesus goes on from here and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Pause. So why must we check our fruit? Why does Jesus go here and tell us to check our fruit? There are two reasons in this section of Scripture. The first one is this. Wolves can look like sheep. You see what Jesus says? He says, beware of these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What do they look like? Sheep. What are they? Wolves. So, the reason we have to check fruit is because we can be deceived by what our eyes can see. This is why their fruit must be examined. They look like Jesus' sheep. From the outside, there's no way to tell that they are really a false prophet or really ravenous wolves. Now, I just want to pause here and say, this is a particularly stark warning to false teachers and false prophets and those who will speak and talk like Christ, but their heart is really set on what they can get out of others. Wolves eat sheep. That's what they do. That's not what shepherds should be doing. I speak, of that, I speak as a pastor in that regard. The New Testament is filled with warnings about false teachers and false prophets and those who would misuse and abuse God's people for their own benefit and their own gain. Wolves can look like sheep. There's a lot of them on television. Be careful. Second, fruit, the second truth, not only do we have to check fruit because wolves can look like sheep, but notice what Jesus says. Jesus says fruit always follows the root. That the fruit comes out of the root. I always like to use the, the, the illustration of an apple tree. Is it an apple tree because there are apples on it, or are there apples on it because it's an apple tree? Only one answer is correct. I'll let you think. Is it an apple tree because there are apples on it, or are there apples on it because it is an apple tree? It's the second one. The root produces the fruit. Do you understand? And that's what Jesus is saying here, okay? The, Greek, um, the fruit always follows the root. Now, Jesus uses a word here for bad that means unfit and un, unusable fruit. It is diseased and useless. Jesus says that though wolves can look like sheep, their fruit cannot be confused. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. The fruit follows the root. An apple tree produces the fruit of apples. So for the believer, hear me, our lives are to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Instead of greed and anger and manipulation and malice and abuse, the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a believer should be peace, joy, love, righteousness, all of those listed in Galatians 5. But now look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus says not only are there false prophets that we have to be aware of, but there are false disciples. He says that there are those who claim to follow Jesus, but really they don't. Now that's not for us to decide, by the way. I'm telling you to judge yourself. Judge yourself. I'll, I will never know until glory who are really believers and who are not. We can't really know that. That's not for us to decide. Jesus is the one who makes these declarations, not any of us. So let me just throw that out there. So we need to have a, a very much an air of humility as we deal with these things. 
So, but look what he says. There are those who claim to follow Jesus, but really don't. Jesus says there, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's one of the scariest verses in the New Testament. And it's a terrifying verse. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? Clearly they know the name of Jesus. And, when, and then I will declare to them, notice that Jesus does this, not any of us. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now notice a couple of things here. Notice first what they say in verse 21. They cry out repeatedly, Jesus is Lord. They call him Lord twice for emphasis. Lord, Lord. They would all say that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. So Jesus says here that a mere profession of faith is not the decisive factor. Just saying, yeah, Jesus is Lord, that is not the decisive factor of entering the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's what Jesus says. Uh, he says that a lot of people will call him Lord, but then he adds a very specific qualifier. He says, it's not simply those who say Jesus is Lord, it's those who what? Do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that raises a huge question. So if you're going to tune in, if you've tuned me out, you need to listen right now. Okay? The question is this. Who are those that do the will of the Father and enter the kingdom? Who are those people? It's not those, Jesus says, who just say, Lord, Lord. It's not those that do all these works that we see here in just a second. Who are those? And I would say, this is why we encourage you to read your Bibles, that fortunately Jesus answers this in John 6. Fortunately, Jesus answers this in John 6. In verse 29, Jesus says this. It says, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That is the work of God, to believe in the one he has sent. That's Jesus. And then in verse 40, Jesus says this, to make it even clearer. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That is the answer of those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is those it is those who repent and believe on Christ Jesus. That is the will of the Father. That is the same message that Jesus has been preaching here in Matthew. Jesus comes on the scene preaching, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is the message. That is those who do the work of God and those who do the will of God. Those who repent and believe on Jesus. Second, so that's what they say. I've tried to clarify that. Now notice what they do in verse 22. Now they did good things for Jesus. Notice all the things they did in Jesus' name. They cast out demons. They do many mighty works and many mighty miracles. Um, they try to show Jesus some fruit. They prophesy. They cast out demons. They do all mighty works in the name of Jesus. That is a compelling argument. By the way, that's way more than your pastor's ever done. Okay? Never cast out demons. I've never healed the sick. Um, I've never done miracles. Okay? I don't have any of this fruit that's right here. Now, that's a compelling argument, and that is compelling fruit. 
in a church, if we were to bring it to modern times, we would say these folks might be pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, in the choir, a greeter at the door. So what's the issue, Jesus? What's the issue? They call you Lord. They have a lot of fruit. What is the issue? And that brings us to the verdict in verse 23. Jesus says in verse 23, he makes a declaration. What does he say? Jesus says there that he never knew them by faith and that the actual fruit of their lives was they were workers of lawlessness. Let me try to tell you what that means. Jesus says there first, I declare to them, I never knew you. So Jesus is making a declaration. The word declare here is, the, is means to bear witness against in a legal setting. This is Jesus sitting as a judge, making a declaration about others in a legal setting. So they might be able to fool other people, might be able to fool me, might be able to fool others, but you can't fool Jesus. Jesus knows. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew them. So despite their confession and their works, Jesus declares against them that they never had a relationship with him by faith. They never had one. They never entered by the narrow gate and walked the hard and difficult path of a disciple. They didn't have a relationship with Christ and then lose it at some point. Jesus says he never knew them. And then Jesus says that they were workers of lawlessness. This means, the word there is anomia, it means without a law. This means that they were living as though Christ had not given them commandments by which they were to live. Jesus commands, hear me, I'm not teaching legalism here. Jesus commands never touch their hearts because their hearts were never changed by Christ through faith. Their confession of Christ and their works did not flow out of a heart that had been changed by Jesus. You can, do, you can obey a lot of commands. You can obey a lot of commands of Jesus. That doesn't make you a Christian. Because the issue is, is it coming out of a heart of love that has been changed by Christ? A new heart, a new nature. One commentator summed it up this way. Quote, a profession of faith that makes no difference in the way we behave is barren and will never save anybody. There must be fruit, consistent, attractive fruit on the tree of our lives. Fruit that will show, here it is, fruit that will show that there is a gardener at work. Fruit that will satisfy the hunger of a passerby. How evil are the fruits to be found in many professing Christians an arrogance that alienates, an externalism that does not touch the heart, a separation between religion and life, a faith that makes no demands or that consists in legalism, a religion that takes refuge in charismatic jargon about prophecy or, or miraculous healings or the driving out of demons, but may not even really know Jesus and does not really do the will of the Heavenly Father. That's what's at stake here. There can be false prophets and there can be false disciples. You have to check your fruit. Does it come out of a heart that's in love with Jesus? And then finally, you need to check your foundation as I, clue, as I close. Look at verses 24 through 27. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
This is an incredible claim of Jesus. This isn't just a rabbi. Jesus is saying, if you don't build your life on the foundation of him, on him, if you don't build your life on the foundation of Christ and his words, then there's coming a day when everything in your life will be tested by the floods and only one building will stand. The distinguishing mark here between these groups is, the, is those who hear the words of Jesus and do them and those who don't. That's the difference. It's those who build their lives on Jesus and his word and those who build it on any other foundation. Now, this really didn't, this really didn't click with me until I went to Israel last year, but we were out on the Sea of Galilee where they actually, Jesus actually taught this. The Sermon on the Mount at the Sea of Galilee, out on the side, out by Bethsaida at Capernaum. And all the ground, this is a desert, the, 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 the sun beats the sand there to death. And the ground is very hard. It's very hard. The sand, the sand is burnt by the sun for months out of the year, and it is very hard. If you're going to build something there, and there's a lot of things that are still standing there 3,000 years later, you have to dig three feet under the sand till you get to bedrock. The, the, it's really hard on top. You have to dig two to three feet till you get to the bedrock. And then you can lay your stones and you can build your house and your structures. They had to learn that in Israel. So when the Jesus hears hear this, they go, well, no, duh, Jesus. I'm looking over at this synagogue that's been here for a long time and I'm looking at all these buildings and they're here because they were built on the rock. They didn't build houses out of wood like we do where a house can topple over by the wind. Now, these, are, these, are, these stones weigh a ton each or more. And they build, dig down to the dirt, they dig down to the bedrock, and then they build it up. And that's the point. The issue, the point for us here is I want to say this. When you dig down to the bottom of your life, the bottom of your faith, is it the Lord Jesus? Is he the rock upon which you have built your life? And you must get to the bottom of your heart and to the bottom of your faith because all other foundations are sand. They're leaky cisterns. They will not hold water. They will not stand up to the currents of our culture. They will not stand up to the suffering and the difficulties of this life. And they will not bring you hope. Have you built your life on Jesus? So I ask you as I close to do a spiritual checkup. Take a long, hard look at your heart and your soul. What path are you on? Have you entered the narrow gate that is Christ? Is he producing the fruits of repentance and holiness in your heart? Is he the foundation and cornerstone of your life? Is he your joy, your hope, and the very purpose of your existence? It's good to get to the bottom of that. It's good to put everything in the proper perspective. And Jesus says eternity is on the line in it. So I would say there is no greater thing you can do at the beginning of this new year is to take a spiritual inventory Ask yourself hard diagnostic questions and get to the bottom of your faith.